turning your Bible, open it to John chapter 3. The wonderful, wonderful privilege to come back to this wonderful gospel written by John the Apostle. Of course, we just finished uh, the section in Nicodemus and being born again and God so loved the world. And we come to a new section, and the new section runs from 322 down through 336, and we'll take that in two weeks. We'll look at 322 through 30 today, and then next week we'll look at 330 through 36. But you follow along as I read from the English Standard Version. After this, in 322, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and the people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears, his, hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. A grand statement there in verse 30. uh, Leon Morris, the commentator in 330, said those may be some of the greatest words that have ever fallen from the lips of mortal man. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now, as we approach the text this morning, this is the fourth successive time that our Lord demonstrates that he is superior to Judaism. You remember back in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 11, Jesus there demonstrated that he is superior in that he provides new wine and renders, if you will, the stone jars of purification obsolete. Jesus is better. In chapter 2, verse 6, he's better than any form of purification. Then secondly, as we came to chapter 2 and verses 12 through 25, Jesus there is superior to the temple and to all the temple trappings and has authority over the temple. He's better than the temple and better than what the temple offers. Thirdly, as we came into that last passage in chapter 3 in verse 1 through 21, Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies of water and spirit regeneration, the doctrine of being born again. He is the ultimate anti-type snake, if you will, that was lifted up in the deserts. And fourthly, as we come to this text in 322 through 36, Jesus is superior to even John the Baptist. And and we know that if that comes off, we understand his role. But the passage is intriguing. There were still disciples following John the Baptist. And here is going to be John the Baptist's final 
testimony regarding Christ. And the testimony is this, that Jesus is utterly unique. He is very God, if you will. And John the Baptist is going to testify to the greatness and to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And I don't know what you think when it comes to your mind when you think about biblical characters. But certainly, of all the biblical characters, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, he is, do you think, the greatest of them all? I mean the greatest of them all. Surpassing all of them. So I don't know, Pastor, what about Abraham? Ah, Abraham's... How, he's a key player. What, what about Moses? Ah, he's, a, he's a key player. What about Jeremiah? Well, he's a key player. What, what about Isaiah? And you go down the list, but here's what I wanted to share with you is that Jesus said of John the Baptist himself, Jesus said, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He said, Jesus said that? Yes, he said that in Matthew eleven eleven, Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And in this marvelous passage, we see the greatest uh, quality that a leader can possess. The quality of pointing people to the Savior and away from self. It is the character of humility. And in this wonderful passage, Jesus, if I went to a theater term, will upstage John the Baptist. When you you think of that term, upstage, that is when the lead actor emerges and all the other actors on the stage begin to, you know, fade away into obscurity. And that's going to be seen here in this passage. So as Jesus arrives on the scene, John the Baptist, if you will, fades into the background. Now as we approach the text this morning, real clearly for you, I want you to see three key discoveries that reveal the greatness of Christ through the final testimony of John the Baptist. Okay? Three discoveries that reveal the greatness of the person of Christ through the final testimony of John the Baptist. And this passage will serve to us, it will serve to you as a reminder to you regarding your role, regarding your focus in the world, regarding your role in life, regarding your role as a husband, regarding your role as a Mother, as a wife, regarding your role as a single person, regarding your role as a businessman, regarding your role as a businesswoman, as a single uh, person in our world, it's going to help you understand. See, our chief ambition in life, family, business, is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to listen carefully this morning. Let's look at the first discovery. The first discovery. And we'll just call it identify the setting. Identify the setting. 
Pick up the text with me because it's always about the text here at Grace Church of the Valley. It says in 322, after this, after what just transpired with Nicodemus, but after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, in the previous passage, you can check back in chapter 2 and verse 13, they were in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, uh, in that whole account with Nicodemus, is, of course, in Judea. But you can see here in the setting that he went into the Judean countryside, is what the text says. The Lord went from Jerusalem into, if you will, the, the rural areas, into the countryside. He goes from Jerusalem and he goes north. Now look at the text again in 322. As he went with his disciples into that countryside, he remained there with them and was baptizing. Okay? He was baptizing. Now if you just read that, it just you would tend to think uh, he was with them and was baptizing. But we know from another passage, he wasn't baptizing. His disciples were baptizing. Just look at the next page in chapter 4, verse 2. It says in 4.1, when Jesus learned of the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, verse 2, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. And so as he goes out into this countryside of Judea, he's baptizing, but not Jesus himself, his disciples are baptizing. Now, when you think of the form of baptism, remember that isn't the baptism that we celebrate now in the New Testament church and now in our church. That was the baptism. Remember, we looked at that early. It was for a spiritual cleansing. Jesus still had not died on the cross yet. Jesus still had not ascended into glory, rose from the dead and ascended. He is still in his earthly ministry. And the baptism conducted by John the Baptist and Jesus was for a spiritual cleansing. Now, watch what happens in the discovery of this setting. Look at the next verse. John, now again, that is John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. John was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and the people were coming and were being baptized. Now, it's interesting. You you catch the setting here. Jesus, and particularly the disciples, are baptizing, okay, in the countryside. John the Baptist is at Anon, near Salim, and he's baptizing. Now, just, just to tie this together for you, just for a moment, because some commentators get lost in this because usually in the in the synoptic, synoptic gospels it goes like this Jesus was baptized Jesus was tempted and immediately after his temptation uh, John the Baptist was arrested okay but look back at the text John wants to be so clear for us there he says in 22 does does it say of the text, and he remained there with them. See, we really believe when you begin to put the chronological accounts together, there was probably, did you know this, about a six-month overlap where Jesus and John ministered together in a different part of that area in the Judean uh, area. They, They overlapped each other. 
In other words, John wants to be clear that in the other Gospels, he was, he was uh, baptized, Jesus, tempted and immediately arrested. He wants you to know that before his temptation and before that, they actually ministered together. Now, the location of this place um, is disputed. You know, it would either be where it says in Anon, near a place called Salim, which is near a place called Shechem, or it would be near a place called Beth Shan. I think the, the key here in verse 23, just grabbing the setting, is that both of these places are in the outer uh, area of Samaria. What, what, what's interesting is if you look again at the, the text, it says that John was baptizing at Anon, and the word Anon just means in Hebrew, it just means springs, and that makes sense. He's there baptizing because there's plenty of water to carry out the baptism and the cleansing, and I don't need to go into that, but certainly this would be one grand argument for complete immersion on baptism. If it was just to be sprinkled, you don't have to go to a place where there's a lot of water. You could just dip and pour water on someone. But here, John the Baptist, a little south of Christ, is at Anon, and he's baptizing, and he was doing that because there was much water there. Now, here, watch this. John adds, and that's John the Apostle, an important point here. Look at verse 24. For John had not been put into prison. And again, that's to help us place the narrative in its place. His imprisonment immediately follows his temptation in the other Gospels. But with the setting in mind, John the Apostle is telling us that the event we are studying comes, listen, in between his baptism and his temptation, but prior, obviously, to his imprisonment. So here's the first discovery. Just identify the setting. But it leads to a second discovery to recognize the disputes. Recognize the dispute. Look what happened in verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, okay? Stop there. The conflict here, when you think of the dispute, was over purification. Now, remember, they had within Judaism all these special rites of purification. In fact, when we were there a year ago as a church, as we were walking around the temple, they had a number of places where they called it a mikvah. And a mikvah all around the temple, and they just weren't around the temple only, but they were places where you could descend down a group, you know, a set of stairs into just a little chamber that they would fill with water. And it was often their custom that before they went into the temple, before they sacrificed um, any kind of animal or made any kind of offering, they would go down and descend, if you will, into this mikvah and cleanse themselves to prepare themselves to give a sacrifice. And so now you've got, in verse 25, a discussion arose. And the dispute, you can see it there, is very clear, between John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And I I think the question that begs itself here is, I think this one particular Jew, and who he is, we don't know. 
Some people think it's somebody who's been following Christ. We just don't know. It just says that it's a certain Jew. I think what happened is that this Jew came to the disciples of John the Baptist, and they said, which baptism is superior? I mean, do we get baptized by John? Or now Jesus and certainly his disciples are baptizing. Which one is it? Which one should we follow? Which one is going to give us what we need? Now, the big issue, though, and the big dispute follows in the next verse. Look at it. That was the question. That was the dispute. That's the discussion. But they came, and they who came, in verse 26, are the disciples of John. They came to John the Baptist and said to him, Rabbi, which... Don't take that as much. Rabbi just means teacher. But Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, here's the issue. He is baptizing and all are going to him. So you got the setting. You have now the dispute, right? The conflict that arises. Honestly, just jealousy sets in. It sets in amongst the disciples of John the Baptist. Hey, John, they might say, we know that you testified to Christ, but John, all are going to him, is what the text says. And I think the disciples of John the Baptist were saying, you told us about this in chapter 1, or at least in the narrative, but we don't like it. And what you have here in verse 26 is, is inside dialogue between John the Baptist and his disciples. Now, this conflict that we have here is partly driven by the proximity of these respective ministries. You've got the ministry of John the Baptist, and you've got the ministry of Jesus. And they are in each other's backyard. And they're baptizing, if you will, in the same district. And here's the specific conflict is the text says that Jesus' disciples were baptizing more than John's disciples. In other words, what's happening probably in this six-month gap as people used to flock to John the Baptist, now they're beginning to flock to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would think and you would think that just makes sense. The miracles that he was doing in John's gospel attracted people to his ministry. He was casting out demons. He just showed an authoritative display of his power in the temple. And so before they're running to John the Baptist, and now they're beginning to move over to Christ. Now, look again at verse 26. I don't know if I, I, I think this would be Accurate. I don't want to read into it, but look at 26. They, the disciples, came to John the Baptist, or came, yeah, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, did you notice this? He <laughs> who is with you across the Jordan. Now, now listen, they don't even mention his name. Come on. I mean, at least the text is somewhat impersonal. They don't say, hey, the one that you told us to follow, the one whom you told us you're not worthy to untie his sandal, King Jesus, they're all following him. No, 
It just says in verse 36, or 26, excuse me, that he who is with you across the Jordan is baptizing and all are going to him. Listen, they're jealous. Bottom line, they see Jesus and John the Baptist in competition. And John's disciples are concerned. And they say to John, John, your star is sinking. John, your ministry in the eyes of others is diminishing. And the disciples of John were resentful over the success of Jesus. Their master, if they looked at that, their rabbi, their teacher, was being overshadowed. Now, look at the text again, just to point it out. They say, and all are going to him. That is an utter exaggeration, okay? Uh, that not all, because people were still going to John the Baptist, but in their minds, you know how things become larger than they are. John, listen, if you don't make some kind of difference here, nobody will be left. After all, John, I mean, maybe they said this to him. You had so many years of anonymity. You had so many years of loneliness in the desert. You had so many years of rejection. You had a culture that has alienated you. John, you were wearing just a loincloth. You're eating bugs. You're eating locusts. You're eating wild honey. He clothed himself with camel skin. And I think you well know that that's not just weird dress. That is the dress of an Old Testament prophet. And maybe they're thinking, John, listen, we do not want to see your star diminish in its brilliance, in its luster. Listen, uh, you know this. At one time, John the Baptist, he was the man. Is that how you'd say it? I mean, he was the dude. I mean, imagine if you're John after 400 silent years, and this guy comes on the scene, spirit-filled from his mother's womb, he's a Nazarite, and he's the greatest preacher, and he's baptizing in the wilderness, and they're all flocking out to him. And I think John's disciples here just say, John, listen, you need to take some action before your ministry is lost into oblivion. Now, disciples, whoever they may be, are sometimes more zealous than their teachers, aren't they? They took John the Baptist further than John would take it. And so here's the first discovery, identify the setting. The second discovery was to recognize the dispute. You see that. Now thirdly and finally, the third discovery is that we must receive John's testimony. And John says some very, very important truths here. And here is how John the Baptist handled the dispute. And how he handled the dispute is amazing. And it serves by way of an extension to us, a great imperative to put into action. Let me just click off a couple of important points on the discovery of receiving John's testimony. Number one, he affirmed God's sovereignty in one's calling. Okay? He affirmed, yeah, there it is, God's sovereignty in one's calling. Look at verse 27. Here's his answer. Here's his testimony. It's amazing. John answered, verse 27, a person cannot receive 
even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. In other words, in that statement, he affirms God's sovereignty and one's calling. God sovereignly, beloved, bestows his blessings and the blessings that come in ministry, John clearly says, they come from above. So John says to his disciples that I cannot exceed that calling that has been given to me. I cannot compare myself to others that is because what I am, I am by the grace of God and I need to be content with that. In other words, John just says here, God gives the gifts. God gives the calling to his servants and a man or a woman can only receive what God gives from above, from heaven. In other words, he sovereignly dispenses the gifts. And John knew that. Do you know that? See, we become at times jealous, and at sometimes we become resentful. And I could put it in my language, we do that in ministry, or maybe you do that in business. You resent someone else's gift, someone else's growth, someone else's business, someone else's home, someone else's children, someone else's finances. But John just says here, listen, here's God's sovereignty in giving of the gifts. Do we have 1 Corinthians 4, 7? Here it is right there. And I, I usually don't do this. I, I put it in the living Bible, so don't quote me on that. But um, I liked how it said it. What are you so puffed up about? What do you have that, John, you know, that God hasn't given you? And if all you have is from God, why act as though you are so great and as though you have accomplished something on your own? That's a great statement, isn't it? That's all John means in this affirmation. Listen, when you're trying to build personal prominence, it blinds you to the sovereignty of God in the giving of the gifts. And beloved, I would say to you that the antidote to a jealous spirit is to recognize God's sovereignty. Whoever and whatever anybody has, it must be given to him from above or from heaven. I think of what the Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God, you know it, I am what I what? am. That's who he is. He affirmed that. He knew that. Listen, John the Baptist is telling us he didn't mind being surpassed because he affirmed the truth of God sovereignly bestowing the gifts and he obviously did on the person of Christ. Listen, God created you with gifts. God created you with abilities. You need to rejoice in that. You need to be content in that. You need to find your joy in that. John did. So he first affirmed God's sovereignty in one's calling. Secondly, he affirmed God's message by his witness. He affirmed God's message by his witness. Look at verse 28. He goes on to his disciples. He said, you yourselves, speaking to those who are bringing this dispute, you yourselves bear witness that I said, 
I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. In other words, John says, I am the forerunner. He had no problem with it. I'm the forerunner to the greater coming one. I came before him, remember, to prepare the way. I play, John says, the subordinate role. Remember? Listen, beloved, John the Baptist knew his place. But let me show you. Just look back a couple chapters in chapter 1. Do you remember these statements? In 1.8, we're here. This is not John the Baptist speaking. It is John the Apostle. And he says in 1.8, speaking of the one coming named John, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. J.B.'s not the light, John the Baptist. I just came to bear witness about the light. Glance down in chapter 1, verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said that he who comes after me ranks before me because he was, what? Before me. Now that's a bizarre statement. He who comes after me, that's right. How many months was John the Baptist born prior to Jesus? You remember that, that probably. Six months, right? His mom was pregnant before Mary was. But look what he says there. He bore, it says in verse 15, he who comes after me, in other words, I'll parallel, paraphrase it, he who was born after me, he actually ranks before me because he was, what? Before me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, in verse 14, and the Word became flesh. John knows that's the message. Look down at chapter 1 and verse 20. Here, John the Baptist, remember they asked in verse 19, at the end of verse 19, who are you? And he said in verse 20, he confessed, and he did not deny. He confessed, I am not the Christ. Glance down to verse 27. He said, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Wow. Look at verse 30 of chapter 1. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. Same statement. Because he was before me. And he says down in verse 34, I have seen And I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Listen, beloved, John the Baptist could have felt slighted. Could have. I mean, he could have felt neglected. He could have felt forgotten. He could have felt the fear of going obscure, if you will. But no, John was never hard-hearted. He was never bitter. He kept pointing people to his precious Savior, that he loved. Barclay, in one of his books, tells of a former pastor, and the pastor's name was Dr. Spence. And Dr. Spence was once a very popular preacher. And there was at one point when Dr. Spence's church was full. But as the years begin to pass, and as Spence began to get up in his years, people begin to drift away. And they drifted away to the church across the road. And there came a young, new pastor 
and uh, he was attracting the crowds. And one particular evening on Sunday night in Dr. Spence's church, there was a very small gathering. And the pastor looked at his little flock. He said, where have all the people gone? And there was kind of an embarrassed silence. But then one of the leaders said, I think they've all gone to the church across the street to hear the new pastor. And Pastor Spence was quiet for a moment, silent for a moment. Then he smiled. Well, then, he said, I think we ought to follow them. And he descended from his pulpit and he took his people down the road to hear the young new pastor. So there's a man who it's not about himself. Listen, what resentfulness would escape us if we remembered that someone else's success is given to him, is given to her by God, and that each of his servants is sent before him with a message to preach. John was given here in the second principle a message. I'm preparing. I'm just the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. So, beloved, with Jesus' ministry on the rise, John's relationship to Jesus actually needed clarifying. And so it is provided, okay? C, you can see it on your outline there. Here's what he did. He affirmed one's ministry focus by way of a picture. John's going to just make it so simple for us. And he's going to put this ministry focus into a picture that maybe allows it just to come out a richer, fuller way. Look what he said. It's it's an incredible statement. He said, the one, John the Baptist speaking, who has the bride is the bridegroom. He said, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, he says, this joy of mine is now complete. He gives us just a picture here, and he talks there about the friend of the bridegroom. In Hebrew, or they would call that, uh, I've never heard this word, a shoshben, okay? The friend of the bridegroom, I mean, we might, have a, we might call it the best man, but it was a little more in this day. It was called the, the shoshben, And it played a very, very key role at a wedding. Uh, He arranged, just imagine this, the the wedding. He would be the one, would be the friend of the bridegroom who gave out all the invitations. He would be the one who presided at the wedding feast. And he had one, and then, so he was there all throughout that. But he really had, as far as I was reading in, in history here, one special duty. Had all the duties on oversight, but then there was one that was key. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and to let no false lover in. He would open the door of that chamber only when in the dark he had heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. And when he heard the bridegroom's voice, He let the bridegroom in, if you will, to the bridal chamber, and then he went away rejoicing because his one main task had been, 
at the end of the ceremony to bring the bride and the groom together. And when that task was done, he faded out, if you will, of the center of the picture. And what John the Baptist is saying in this picture is he is not, you know, the groom, if you will, okay, the bridegroom. He is the friend of the bridegroom. In other words, he is not the Christ. And John's entire joy was his master's voice and not his own. And once John completed his role, he faded into obscurity. In fact, I think you well know that not long after this, John would then be arrested. He would be placed into prison. A woman by the name of Zalame would come out and perform a lewd dance upon which the king said, ask me for whatever you wish, up to half of my kingdom, and it will be given to you. And she went over to her mother and said, bring me the head of John the Baptist on a what? On a platter. And that's exactly what happened not long after this. The dance was performed. They went into a cell, severed his head from his body, and his life was over. But you understand that John the Baptist before that had fulfilled his task of bearing witness to the greater one than himself. It's a wonderful picture. Listen, his entire ministry was to prepare the arrival of Christ, to prepare the arrival of the groom. And I certainly don't have the time to take you to all the Old Testament analogies where the Israel was pictured as the bride of Yahweh. And here this picture is now becoming complete that here Jesus Christ has come. So what John the Baptist in essence tells his disciples, I'm not important. I'm only here for the joy of whom the wedding is all about. And it's all about Christ. You see, for John the Baptist, this dispute did not lead to depression. It did not lead to self-pity. I can't say enough of that. Often our depression comes because we look at other people. And we see what they have, the gifts they have, the personality they have, the business they have, the home they have, the marriage they have, and you're driven to lose all your joy. But John says, not me. I have one task, and that's to exalt Christ. And I'm not in a self-pitying mode, J.B. says, but I have joy. In fact, he says, Jesus' advancement is my primary joy. And so the rising prominence of Jesus, as upsetting as it must have been to some of John's disciples, listen, floods John with surpassing joy because that was exactly what he himself had worked for. In fact, look at the end of 29. He said, therefore, this joy of mine is now what? Complete. And then what Morris said may be the greatest words to ever fall from the lips of mortal men is in verse 30. Would you look at it? John the Baptist said, you know, well, he must increase, but I must what? Decrease. Listen, in the Baptist, there was no jealousy. There's no strife. 
There's no rivalry. There's no bitterness. There's no jockeying for position. And listen, I can only just say to you personally, every man in the ministry, I would think, is going to struggle with this. I mean, you want to succeed in ministry. You want to do something significant for the cause. And sometimes there's a very fine line in there where you cross over from holy zeal to it being all about yourself. And so listen, I'm not exempt from this. But I would say to you uh, is this, is what use is there in magnifying the herald, John the Baptist, when the king's here, right? That seems to be the point. Now, let me just make a theological point here that the transition from the Baptist to Jesus also represents a crucial salvation, historical watershed from the Old Testament prophetic era to that of Jesus Christ. The Messiah is here. I mean, the truth is this. And I don't want it to focus on John tonight, but I think you'll get it. John's humility was the key to his greatness. It was his self-denying humility that actually made him great, though he himself is not great. He wouldn't want me to say that. He's pointing to the one who's the Savior. He's pointing people to Christ. Let me just ask you some questions, okay? It's not a history lesson, right? It's about you. It's about me. One day you're going to be surpassed. You're going to be surpassed as a leader. You're going to be surpassed as an athlete. I mean, that day came for me at various times. You know, I played college basketball, and that's one of the difficult things because what I heard MacArthur say one time, he said, preachers are some of the most competitive people that I know. And I think he's right. If you want to know me, I'm, I'm a point guard. I'm a battler. I am a fighter. But the day will come when you will be surpassed as a leader, as an athlete, as a businessman, as a businesswoman, as a homemaker, as a mother, you're going to be eclipsed. You're going to actually be looked over. You might even be asked to take a lesser role. And I just want to ask you, you okay with that? You okay with that? Paul said it this way when he said, some preach Christ. Here's how Paul looked at it. From envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. He said, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. He said, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. In Philippians 1, he said, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Some preached him out of envy. Some preached Christ out of strife. Some preached Christ out of jealousy. Paul said, listen, my only heart is that in every way Christ is proclaimed. He said, in that I rejoice. How about you and the gifts and the abilities of another? Let me ask you this question. I just pray that God would give our church servants who think like John the Baptist, who whole life 
point uh, to Christ. What if, what if men, we'll talk about that in February, in your home, your joy was to serve another? What if in your home it wasn't about you? What if in your home, in my home, our chief end was to become the greatest servant of them all? That's what our home should be like. What, what if all of you, mothers, homemakers, grandmothers, you existed for the joy of another, the joy of serving people, the joy of pointing your kids to the person of Christ? What would happen in homes like that? Well, I'll tell you, in homes like that, Christ would be honored, would he not? When you have two people trying to outdo each other in love and service, that would be a happy and a harmonious home. Where the home struggles is when people have competing desires and it's more about them than about other people. We used to use the picture in parenting. How is your home? Is your home a a bunch of people standing in a circle, okay? Outward looking, holding hands with a circle going around. Or is your home gathered in a circle, holding hands, looking inward because it's about someone else who's right across from you that you can see? See, sometimes our focus is completely on the outside. John says here, hey, my goal is just to serve that one. What what if in business you were the servant of all? What if on your athletic team and on the athletic field you were the servant of all and your goal was to make your team greater? Let me just ask you, are you joyful when others are greater preachers? That, that's kind of for me, okay? Are you greater when you see somebody who's just a mother and she's just an awesome mother and you grew up in an unsaved home and she's coming from five generations of moms and grandmas and great-grandmas and now all that's been, and you, you look and I'm telling you, your joy can go. It can suck out of you if you're not looking to Christ, right? Or when someone's a better businessman or a better businesswoman or someone has a greater personality or they're better looking or a thousand other things. There was the great church father, Augustine, who said, ask me what is the first thing in religion? He said, I should reply that the first, the second, and the third thing therein is humility. I think that says it all, doesn't it? You know, and if you're going to be humble like John the Baptist, you're, you're going to have to die to self, right? You have to die to self and to your needs. I, I think I read this, I don't know, uh, maybe a year or two back, but I thought I'd read it to you again because it made me think about John the Baptist. And maybe it will make you think about your lot in life. It's something on humility, and it's something on your ability to deny yourself because humble people deny themselves. Humble people put the needs of others before them. For John, it didn't matter that Jesus was advancing in popularity. That was his goal. His eye was on the prize. And one time when I came into John MacArthur's office, there was this, it was on a plaque And it was on his desk, and I think I've read this to you once, but hear it again. It ministered to me again. Here's what it said. It was just on a plaque, and it was just right there, and it was stitched. And he kept it right, not stitched, but it was typed right there and put very nicely done. But it said this, when you are forgotten, 
or neglected or purposely set at naught, and you sting and hurt with the insult or the oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ. That is dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, your advice disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart, or even defend yourself, but take it all in a patient, loving silence. That is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, or any annoyance, when you can stand face to face with waste, folly, extravagance, spiritual insensibility, and endure it as Jesus endured it, that is dying to self. When you are content with any food, any offering, any raiment, any climate, any society, any attitude, any interruption by the will of God, that is dying to self. And when you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or to record your own good works or itch after commendation, when you can truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. When you see your brother prosper and have his needs met and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no, feel no envy nor question God while your own needs are far greater and in desperate circumstances, that is dying to self. And when you receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself, can humbly submit both inwardly and outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart, that is dying to self. See, the, the secret for John the Baptist, he was humble. And in his humility, he died to self. You know the great missionary William Carey? He laid dying. May this be said of us. He's laying dying. He's on his deathbed. And he turned to his friend and he said this, quote, he said, when I am gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. He said, I desire that Christ alone might be magnified, end of quote. Listen, that was the spirit of John the Baptist. He must become greater and I must become less, amen? Amen.